Welcome back, everyone. And if it works to have your video on, it's nice for me to be able to see people, if that can work for you. So I'm wanting to continue from what I began last time. I'm offering in these three successive sessions an exploration of what is right at the heart of the Buddhist teaching of 2,600 years of tradition. Right at the center <clears throat> is the teaching that the Buddha once gave, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. Dukkha is usually translated as suffering. And I find that um, confusing. What does the end of dukkha mean? Does it mean the end of difficult or painful experiences? Not necessarily. And so last time I clarified the meaning of dukkha in particular by pointing to how in the teachings of the Buddha, there are at least four different ways that he unpacked the meaning of dukkha. Only the last of which really helps us make sense of what the end of dukkha is. And so what I want to do today is briefly review what I covered last time that understanding of what this means, the end of dukkha. And as you know, if you were there last time, the, the meaning of dukkha that helps us to make sense of what the end of dukkha is, is dukkha as reactivity. Dukkha as the um, often automatic or habitual or unconscious grabbing hold and pushing away which can happen on all sorts of levels, at the level of the mind, uh, in relationships, in the world, in the larger world. You know, um, conflicts, many conflicts and wars are, you know, as it were, magnifications of dukkha. And so I think that this teaching of Dukkha and the end of the Dukkha not only gets right at the heart of the tradition, right out the heart of the teachings, but it does so in a way which it can be understood uh, in a very simple way and which can illuminate in a very simple and direct way our practice. I've divided the three times especially into looking at three levels of our experience. Last time I looked at the meaning of this teaching, particularly at the level of our individual meditation practice. And I'm going to continue some with that, review, look at that more, look in more depth. But I also today want to bring out what dukkha and the end of dukkha means in the context of our relational lives, our lives with others. How do we practice to transform reactivity with others? 
And then next time, I want to bring in how the teaching of dukkha and the end of dukkha can really be a guide for our social relationships, our larger social and collective relationships. So it's, these are uh, large areas, that I, but I, I want to give the teaching which really points to the way that we can bring the center of the teachings into all parts of our lives. And I'll give the basics of that. And we could probably take, uh, you know, half a year with each, each of these three areas. These are large areas, but I want to give the basics and also point to a number of ways that we can practice. We did that last time, and uh, again, uh, I, will, I will review that, uh, you know, the material that I covered last time. So I believe that, you know, maybe I'll say one more thing before going into more detail. A very simple way that we can understand uh, dukkha and the end of dukkha, if we understand the core meaning of dukkha that's relevant here as dukkha as reactivity, then the movement of our practice is from reactivity to non-reactive, responsiveness. So a very, in very simple English, the aim of this entire long tradition, 2600 years, is to go from reactivity to responsiveness. And you can, you know, if, if you want to use other language, you might do that. That's what I want to, that's what I want to explicate, point to ways of practicing. Uh, today, reviewing and saying a little bit more about individual practice, then going more into uh, relational practice. So I mentioned last time that one of the reasons that there can be confusion about dukkha and that the typical translation of dukkha is that of suffering, which, you know, doesn't necessarily make sense of what the end of dukkha means. You know, again, we don't particularly, and what is painful. That's part of human life. We don't end, um, we don't end uh, having difficult experiences. <clears throat> One of the reasons that this can be confusing is that the teachings of the Buddha were given in an oral tradition. They weren't written down until 500 years after the death of the Buddha, which means that they weren't systematized. And the Buddha, as far as I know from reading the, uh, the discourses written down many hundreds of years later, never went back and said, oh, look, I've got four different meanings of dukkha. And I better clarify which of them makes sense of the end of dukkha. Didn't happen, right? And so it's left to us, really, to, um, to clarify. So what I, what I went into last time is that there are at least four different meanings of dukkha, and I'll be briefer than I was last time. Only the last one helps us make sense of what the end of dukkha is. The first three do not, and yet they are probably the predominant ways that dukkha is talked about in the text. The first of them is more or less synonymous with 
the unpleasant. This is probably the primary way the Buddha said. He would say, what is dukkha? You know, illness is dukkha. Pain is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Pointing to the unpleasant um, experiences. And this is connected with the way that the word dukkha appears in the language of the time where it is synonymous with the unpleasant. You know, and the actual root in the original language had to do, uh, I think the word, uh, the word uh, do means bad or difficult, or the, the, the root of dukkha, the first part, do, the du means uh, difficult or, or bad, and the, the ka means empty. And there's actually an interesting reference to um, dukkha, the unpleasant, being like a bumpy ride in a cart. And the, the actual root, the empty, has to do with where the axle goes in a cart. And if there's a bad placement, the ride is bumpy. That's the original etymology. And so the meaning of dukkha here is the unpleasant, the bumpy, the difficult. But again, we can ask the question, does that ever end as long as we're alive? And I, the answer would be no. So to that extent, that dimension of dukkha, if we call it dukkha, continues. And you'll find it similar. We'll find it similar for the second and third meanings. The second meaning of dukkha that was given less frequently was that dukkha is what happens when we have a pleasant experience. And because of impermanent experience, because of the impermanence of experience, it won't last. And the Buddha said that's an aspect of dukkha, the fact that, un, that pleasant experiences don't last. He called that uh, the dukkha of alternation. But we again can ask, does that ever end? No. Impermanent keeps on happening. The unpleasant, the pleasant experience will always eventually pass, will, will end. So that never ends. So that meaning of dukkha doesn't help us make sense of what the end of dukkha is. And in a similar way, the third meaning of dukkha is that uh, dukkha is the fact that nothing of a conditioned nature can give us final and lasting satisfaction. No pleasant meal, no relationship that's working well, no good job will give us lasting satisfaction. They give us satisfaction for a while. And the Buddha said that's also a dimension of dukkha. But again, does that ever end? No. Conditioned phenomena never will give lasting satisfaction. Although it points to a way of practicing, dukkha doesn't end that way. And it's only in the fourth meaning that we have a clear sense of uh, a kind of dukkha that can end. And that's in that comes out in the teaching of the two arrows and also the teaching of dependent origination. Teaching of the two arrows I'll be brief on is the Buddha said, everyone seems to have unpleasant experiences. How does a mature practitioner differ from a non-practitioner or a less mature practitioner? He said, everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. In that, everyone is the same. But what happens with the non-practitioner or the uh, less mature practitioner 
is that when there's the unpleasant experience, we will react to it. We will tense around unpleasant physical experiences. We will uh, have a difficult interaction and blame the other person. The Buddha said having the original unpleasant experience is like being shot by an arrow. He called it the first arrow. Everyone experiences the first arrow, mature practitioners included, but mature practitioners, immature practitioners or non-practitioners shoot a second arrow, we might say at oneself or another, as if that would help. And so I tense around unpleasant sensations. And I think I mentioned last time that the area where mindfulness was first brought into the medical field was with chronic pain. Because with chronic, with some types of chronic pain, people are tensing all the time around the pain. And I've heard it said that as much as 80% of the pain isn't the original stimulus, it's the tensing. That's the second arrow, right? And so with mindfulness as an intervention, one could eliminate much of that 80%. 20% is still there, but much of the 80% can be eliminated. Huge contribution, right? Anyway, that the tensing is the second arrow. Again, something happens I don't like, I blame myself, I blame others, you know, that's the second arrow. I'm calling that reactivity, and that is a sense of dukkha that um, can end. In other words, I can have an experience uh, in which something difficult happens. If I am non-reactive, I don't shoot the second arrow. Right? And so that's going to be the center of the practice that I'll, that I'll highlight in different ways the rest of the talk and, and, and next time as, as, as well. So that's the core of it. We can also see this in the teaching of dependent origination, which I gave last time in brief, which is, um, was the teaching the Buddha came to on the night of his awakening. And so I won't go into it in detail, it's essentially a teaching about what we bring to experience, what happens in experience, and then the results. So I'll just go to a part of it. So let's use that slide now, Carlita. This is the area that's very, very relevant to this teaching in our practice. So the Buddha says that with every moment, there is some kind of contact with the senses. And this could be any of the five senses plus thinking, which the, in Buddhist psychology is a sixth sense. On the basis of that contact, which is just happening all the time, there's a feeling tone, a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral sense. And so I eat a cookie, I have a pleasant sense. You know, uh, most of what we experience is neutral. We have some unpleasant experiences, some pleasant experience, relatively small part of our experience, but very much what we like to focus on. And so when there's not mindfulness, and when we have a core ignorance that thinks that happiness can come from grabbing hold of the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant, when those conditions are there, then a pleasant feeling tone, the pleasant taste of the cookie, let's say, will lead first to wanting, and then to grasping. And sometimes this can happen bam, bam, very quickly. You know, 
I like the pleasant taste of the cookie, and I chew it quickly and grab for the second, right? And in itself, there's nothing necessarily wrong about having that second cookie. We're looking particularly at the grasping, and I'll get back to that in, in a little while. Similarly, if there's something unpleasant happening, I, um, someone says something I don't like, and I might very automatically uh, not want that to happen and push it away with a negative comment, maybe judge the person or something like that. And I'm, you know, these are the two forms of reactivity, grasping after the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant. <clears throat> and so we can let go of the slide now. And so the end of dukkha is, I would maintain, the end of reactivity. You know, uh, again, uh, and another way to say this is that this, you know, this is really pointing to the depths of practice. Non-reactivity is a very simple, down-to-earth way of talking about this, but this, also, this is also very much uh, about being free, you know, being wise. You know, love is non-reactive and so forth. And so we can, you know, we can ask, what are the different forms of reactivity? And when partly we looked last time, you know, that we, part of what I think is a core way of practice is studying our forms of reactivity. What are the ways that I grasp? What are the ways that I push away? Coming up with your list of your top five. Again, I, I often joke, this isn't what we put into the uh, promotional materials for Spirit Rock. You know, come, enjoy Wednesday morning. Study your five main forms of reactivity. Enjoy it. <laughs> or whatever. You know, we, we, we come say, develop love, mindfulness, wisdom. You know, but here, really focus and study your forms of reactivity, right? That's, it's an important part of the practice and, and really key. So... We want to look at the way that we might be reactive, um, you know, in our relationships. And I'll talk a little bit later about that, that we may be uh, grasping after pleasant tastes, pleasant experiences. You know, food is an obvious area, all sorts of different kinds of food. We may grasp after certain kinds of comfort. And again, I'm, I'll come back to this, but it's the actual content is not the problem. Might be fine to have that second piece of cake or the second cookie, but the question is, am I grasping? Am I pushing away? Right? You know, I might be, you know, this is really a, a complexity of reactivity that I might be reactive. An example I gave last time, I might be reactive towards my coworker because the coworker didn't keep an agreement. And I might get really blaming and judging. Well, I'm, you know, the practice doesn't say give up your observation that the agreement wasn't kept. What we're looking for, and this is the complexity of reactivity, that reactivity can be mixed with something that's insightful, something that's valuable. I can be deeply reactive about injustice, but it's important that I still you know, act against injustice. And what the teaching is going to be is to transform the reactivity, 
with my coworker or with the injustice, transform the reactivity, and then respond to the situation about the agreement or injustice, respond non-reactively. Not easy, but that's what we're pointing to. So that's a real complexity because it's easy to say, oh, I won't be reactive. I'll just forget about my coworker not keeping the agreement. That's not what's being suggested. Right? Really, really crucial point. So one of the ways we'll practice is to look when I'm reactive, is there something valuable connected with my reactivity? So that's a really, it's a tricky and complex aspect of practice, isn't it? You know, really it's, it's interesting, right? But we can see that especially when we're judgmental. Often there might be something that's actually important there that I want to separate from the being judgmental and come back either to myself or another and talk about in a more balanced way or relate to. Not, not easy. So again, I can be uh, grasping after all sorts of things. I can also be pushing away reactively, particularly something difficult, uh, pain in the body. Um, I can be pushing away certain emotions, anger, boredom, uh, sadness, loneliness. I may not want to experience those, right? And so um, what we want to do is to really see what our main forms of reactivity are. And we want to also be sensitive to where there might be something, uh, something valuable. So last time I gave, uh, and I'll be brief here, I gave several ways of practicing with reactivity, practicing to come to the end of dukkha. The first one I gave was be aware of the level of reactivity and whether you can bring mindfulness to it. Sometimes the reactivity is too much to bring mindful to. You know, the things, so I, I use that uh, scale like the Olympic divers, one to 10, make an assessment what level of reactivity is occurring right now. If it's a nine or a 10, mindfulness may not be workable. Then it, the best thing to do is do what brings me back to balance what takes me out of that nine or a 10. If it's a five or a six or seven, maybe I can bring mindfulness and study. So the first, uh, the first way of practicing is clarify the level of intensity and know whether it's workable. You know? And then the um, second way is to uh, generally cultivate different forms of non-reactivity. Cultivate mindfulness, cultivate loving-kindness, uh, cultivate wisdom, cultivate skillful non-reactive speech. We want to keep on developing uh, in being more and more skillful and non-reactive. A third way of practicing is to actually bring mindfulness to our reactivity. When you're reactive in your mind, study it. Bring it, you know, there's anger, being judgmental towards someone, bring it into your practice, study what it's like. A lot of discoveries can be, can be had. It's really so fascinating. Again, maybe not what we signed up for with meditation. How many people signed up to be mindful of reactivity? Okay. I don't see hands going up right now. Right, we signed up there. I see oh, now a few late hands. Okay, very good. Um, but we didn't sign up for that. We signed up 
I certainly didn't. You know, I heard when the teachers were, I heard the teachers saying, you know, you'll explore suffering sometimes. I said, that's not for me. I'm here for bliss. <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, uh, a short time later, I learned, <laughs> which probably has been our, our, how many can relate to that? <laughs> okay, I think that's, that's pretty clear. And so be mindful of the reactivity. Study what uh, grasping is like. Study what greed is like. You know, I've sometimes mentioned uh, um, my colleague Diana Winston and I had a class once that we called greed management, where we, for five sessions, we cultivated mindfulness of greed. I think I mentioned that we had extremely low enrollment in that class. You know, um, we had five people sign up for greed management, but we didn't care. We were into it. You know, we had, I think I mentioned, we had our, our final exam for the class was doing silent walking meditation through a newly opened Bed Bath & Beyond Superstore. Right? And people got to study. I, I got to study how I found myself wanting things that before entering the store, I didn't even know the products existed. It was interesting, right? So, but what we found when we studied greed carefully, we studied that it was uh, very interesting. It was highly impulsive. It was very, very self-centered. Greed is very self-centered. Other people's needs when I was in greed did not matter. Right? It was all about me and satisfying what I imagined were my needs. Also, when I was greedy, we found out when we studied it, there was no sense of consequences. It was just, I want this, right? You know, that People relate to that. So study that carefully. It's pretty interesting to study. You know? And then the fourth way of practicing was to bring in the wisdom teachings. Remember when you're practicing the teachings of the two arrows. You know, remember that uh, notion of non-reactivity. And then lastly, bringing in what we call the heart practices, particularly compassion. If we're looking at reactivity a lot, we want to hold our own being with kindness, with some compassion. So having some heart practice. I think last time, I won't do it this time, last time, it's on, I think it's on the recording, I think at the end of the practice, we did a very brief self-compassion practice. Maybe I can do that if we have time right at the end of the session. <clears throat> so what I want to do for the rest of the time is to talk about what uh, practicing with reactivity looks like in the context of relationships. You know, that was my idea that we could really bring our practice so that we look at individual practice, we look at practice and relationships, and then we look at how we bring the end of dukkha and non-reactivity even into the social domain, you know, which is deeply, deeply needed in this, uh, in the world, you know, that uh, we can see, we can, you know, it's not very hard to see so much reactivity and so much dukkha in that last sense in the world right now. You know, so this is, you know, this teaching about the end of the dukkha, it's our North Star. It's what we, we look at in all parts of our lives. And it, you know, you know, to some extent, it goes against the grain of a lot that's out there. So just to know that, it, that's why community is so important, right? Um, 
So, so what are the what are the some of the forms of dukkha of grasping and pushing away in relationships? You know, we can uh, we can notice um, we can notice that there's you know I have all my own individual grasping and pushing away in the context of the relationship. You know, if I'm in the context of a partnership. I want something very much, my partner doesn't. I want something different. Or I don't like that. I don't like what's happening. And I get very reactive about that. Anyone ever experienced those? Okay, very, that's right. You know, happens all the time, right? So the reactivity that we experience sometimes on our own, we certainly experience in relationships. So again, it's valuable just to have our... our um, kind of our intention to look for reactivity in the context of relationships. And if for you it's enough just to, you know, take the first steps and look at it, how it appears in your own experience, that's fine. We're adding, obviously, another level of complexity here. So I can, you know, I might like this, I want this, or I might be possessive in different ways in the relationship, or might want certain things to happen, whether it's a close relationship or a work relationship. Um, and again, there are different ways that I can be reactive and push away that are fairly obvious. Again, I can be judgmental of the other person. I can be reactive in my speech. Um, I can, you know, say things um, that are nasty. The other person's reactive. I'm reactive. You know, I've seen in many of my own relationships, I sometimes get in a dynamic where <clears throat> the other person's reactive, I become reactive, and we're in a loop for a while. Anyone know that one? Yeah, two intersecting reactivities, right? Very, very common. You know, there's a, <clears throat> there's a cartoon um, <clears throat> that I once found in The New Yorker, which shows a woman sitting on a couch, uh, talking to what looks like to be a detective behind the couch. There's a looks like a police officer. Also beyond the couch, behind the couch seems to be a body with two legs, uh, two feet sticking up. And the woman says to the detective, uh, "I misspoke. He misheard. Shots rang out. <laughs> I misspoke." He misheard, shots rang out. Is that familiar? Anyone relate to that? That's reactivity, right? That's so, um, we want to study. So ways of practicing with, uh, in a relational context. Um, first thing is that we bring in all of our individual practices, all of our ways of practicing with our own individual consciousness and experience we bring into relationships. And so I sometimes think of a mature practice within a relationship, let's say, with one other person as taking five different forms. So listen for these. The first is I continue with all the material of the relationship to do my own individual practice. In other words, I meditate, I study my own reactivity, <clears throat> independent or 
you know, just on my own. Very important. I do my own individual practice. And then secondly, I also cultivate ways of practicing relationally. This might be skillful speech, which I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. It could be um, bringing empathy to the relationship. So I, en I engage in skillful relational practice. Again, whatever the other person is doing, I do those too. Thirdly, the other person does individual practice. And fourthly, the other person does skillful relational practice like speech practice. And then fifthly, we cooperate together if we're both doing practice. We do uh, coordinated relational practices together. You know, could be that my, my friend or partner says, you know, when, uh, when you speak something like that, I notice I become reactive and I say something nasty back. So could we look at those situations and maybe when they occur, take a time out, you know, take a time out and we'll both meditate and look at that experience. How does that sound for a relationship? How would you like to have that kind of relationship at work, right? Okay, yeah, okay. So if I am elected president, we will have training for everyone. Okay, but uh, probably not likely to happen in the next few years. So we'll have to, uh, on our own, bring these into our, our workplaces. But those are five, those five that are there. Now, a um, complication with many relationships is that only two of those five practices are possible. Which are those two? The first two, right? Sometimes the other person might not even be interested, right? And then I can only do my first two, but very important for me to do my first two, that is my own individual practice and my trying to be skillful in speech, no matter what the other person's doing. Really, really crucial. Sometimes we think, oh, the other person isn't interested. You know, then I don't need to be, <laughs> right? And so here we want to bring our practice in. So um, that's the first, uh, first uh, kind of practice guide I want, I want to give. You know, have can you know have that as an ideal? Those five occurring, and then I can do my own inner work. I can work with difficult emotions when they come up. I can continue my practice being with unpleasant experiences, being with the pleasant, being with the unpleasant. Notice when I shoot the second arrow. Um, you know, um, and also I can try to ask when I'm reactive: Is there something valuable here? You know that very challenging aspect of distinguishing my insight or what's important or what's valuable from the reactivity, like the example with the coworker who didn't keep the agreement. Really important for me to, to know that and find a good time to bring it up, right? But if uh, ideally, bringing it up and speaking non-reactively. So that's, again, that's why working with reactivity has its complexities. You know, if I'm judgmental, I want to see if there's some insight in the judgment and then transform the being judgmental. Not easy, right? But that's, and we can come back to that. So I can, um, I can learn how to, you know, I can keep on 
doing my own inner practice in meditation. I can be with my, let's say, my anger that comes up, the difficult emotions and so forth. And then there also are distinct relational practices. There is, we want to become more skillful. And maybe I can come back to this at a future time. I teach a lot on wise speech. I haven't taught it on a Wednesday, probably for several years. How many would like some attention to skillful speech sometime? You know, but okay. Maybe I can, I can bring that up here. I'll be quite brief. That um, the Buddha gave four guidelines for skillful speech. The first is being truthful. The second is being helpful. The third is coming out of a kind heart, even if I'm saying something difficult. And the fourth is having good timing. They all have to be there together. I can be uh, really truthful, really helpful, come out of a beautiful heart. And if my timing is bad, it can be a mess. <laughs> right? So interesting, right? So we have to have all four of those together. And we could, we could take time with each of those to say more clearly what they mean. But I want to be truthful. And so part of what that means as a practice is watch the times when I'm not so truthful. Be mindful when I'm exaggerating or saying something for self-image or protecting myself in some way, in some way that has aspects of uh, not being truthful. You know, then I can ask, is my kind heart there? Am I being, am I being helpful, right? When, you know, um, and again, we can have a good heart and still say no, set boundaries, say that's not okay. It's more difficult to do that with kindness, right? It's more difficult to say no, say that wasn't okay, and have a kind heart. So that, again, we could go into more detail on that. We also want to find ways to speak non-reactively. So partly we want to watch out for some of our language. You know, watch out, am I being judgmental? Am I using judgmental language? You know, usually using words like idiot is not a part of skillful speech. You know, did I need to say that? Probably not, right? And so there, there but some of the language we can use um, can be more non-reactive. Maybe we don't use certain words, but what we have found out in teaching on wise speech is that people can use pretty nice language and kind of still be reactive internally. You know, it's pretty interesting. I, there's, I, I, maybe I can show it next time, but there's a really interesting video which has, uh, it's kind of like a skit of two women using kind of spiritual language, but actually one of them is trying to get the other person to pay the rent, which she is not paying. And the first person is using beautiful spiritual language. And, you know, what she really wants is the person to pay the rent. And finally, she just comes out and blurts it out. But she's using all this kind of fancy language. Uh, it's kind of funny. But it's uh, so people can use uh, wonderful language and still kind of have reactivity there. Maybe I'll, I'll see if I can find that video because it's a lot of, it's, it's really fun. It's pretty, pretty quick. Okay. Um, so... It's really, basically that's to say it really matters what's in your heart. Even if, you know, you can have pretty clean language and the other person will pick up on your reactivity even with your clean language right away. We know that, right? People are really tuned into when we're reactive. Um, you know, other things that can be really helpful 
is sometimes um, interpersonally or in groups, and some, some groups work with this, sometimes just saying uh, something like when there's a difficult experience, maybe some of you do this, saying, ouch. Anyone do that in groups sometimes? Probably some of you do. You can say something like, something happens that's difficult in a group, and instead of saying, why did you say that, or blah, 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 you just say, ouch. And what is that doing? It's interesting. It goes right back to the Buddha's teaching of, uh, about the movement from contact to feeling tone to, um, to grasping or pushing away. What we're basically saying is my feeling tone was unpleasant when we say ouch, right? And what it's saying is that didn't feel good. And the understanding, you know, it's almost like in my own mind, I can understand I can easily go right to reactivity with that, but I'm going back to the feeling tone, which is pre-reactive, right? Can you see how that could be really skillful? That didn't feel good. That hurt. You know, we can say it in different ways, you know, and that can be a very, very skillful thing because it's actually not being reactive. Of course, we could say ouch in a reactive way, right? <laughs> you know, but mostly if we have that language, it's pointing to the fact that felt painful and drawing attention to that rather than going right into reactivity. So that can be really, really interesting. And, you know, in some groups that work with skillful speech, I've done this a lot, one can have guidelines which can include saying, ouch, in other groups I've worked with, when something difficult happens, people say, hippopotamus. And everyone sort of looks around, okay, and it basically is like, time out, let's attend to what happened, you know, rather than go into reactivity. You know, and I worked with uh, uh, one group last year in a retreat where we, had, we, were, we were doing interactive work together and working with skillful speech, and we developed 24 guidelines for being skillful and non-reactive with each other. And this is really, really helpful if you're in an ongoing group, could be done in a relationship, is to have guidelines. I'll just re uh, read a few of these from the list of 24. Treat everyone with respect. Everyone has Buddha nature. Practice mindful listening. Be present to others. Listen internally and externally. Avoid shaming and blaming as much as possible. Intend to understand the other with empathy. You can still disagree, right? So that gives an example. And those are, those are five of 24 that we had. And that can be really beautiful. And you can even do this online. Some groups have agreements online that really changes online discussion when one, when one does that. And you, you can ask people to, to stay with all of those. So that can be really helpful. So maybe I'll, I'll end there, and there's a lot more that we could say about uh, practicing non-reactivity in relationships, but I think this gives us a beginning. Again, much like with individual practice, we want to study our own patterns of reactivity, bring inner practice to our reactivity, but then we can also bring these more relational kinds of practices, skillful speech, empathy, using guidelines and groups. There's a lot more that we could go into with that. So let me finish with two things. 
I want to invite people to explore reactivity in the next week. How many would like to explore reactivity individually and maybe relationally? And then we can come back and talk about it. Yeah, that's, that's great. And then secondly, I'll just, uh, and I'll come back to that at the end. We can, we can set some intentions. But then I want to end with uh, just a few quotations that bring out this core teaching about dukkha and the end of dukkha. First is from the Buddha. Hatred never ceases through hatred. It is only through love that it ceases. This is an ancient law. Can, can you hear how that's a teaching about non-reactivity? And then related to that um, is uh, something from James Baldwin. And listen to this, bearing in mind that teaching about how when we have something unpleasant or painful, um, we will go towards reactivity. Listen to James Baldwin. This is from 1960. Uh, 1955, he says, I imagine that one of the reasons that people cling to their hatred so stubbornly it is that is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. Can you hear the Buddhist teaching in that? That movement from pain to reactivity, hatred being one form of it? Interesting. And so, finally, the words from Achan Cha from the Thai forest tradition. So don't hold on to any of this. Contemplate clearly, and all of your grasping and pushing away will eventually be exhausted. He says, just keep on looking at it. It'll end. Very hopeful words. Okay, so let's sit quietly for a few moments. Just see what may have resonated with you or what was important. And see if there's any question you have or some sharing, a request to clarify something more. See if there's anything there for you that you'd like to bring up in our discussion time. Great, so thanks everyone. It looks, looks like we have uh, Wadia. Am I pronouncing your name right? And then Jamal. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Good afternoon, all. Um, 
as I was listening to the talk um, with regards to, you know, everything and responsiveness, uh, reactivity and yeah. non-reactivity, um, what uh, ignited uh, thought was um, growing up. Yeah. And I remember as far back as being 11, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, my yeah. mom and dad, both of my parents uh, were very kind. My mom more specifically, may they rest in peace. Um, she instilled, and she wasn't a Buddhist. She wasn't a practitioner. She was a Catholic Christian. Yeah. Um, she would instill in us uh non-reactivity um and i could remember like while you're talking i'm saying okay now it makes sense you know what the buddha is saying i'm trying to connect the dots because then i was seething you know uh as a child because i wanted to react to what was being you know projected but she would often say you know just sit with it don't respond, you know, um, and I, I, why, why do I have to sit with, why can't I lash back? Why can't I shoot that arrow? You know, she's, she was adamant about it. And now I see that the suffering would have come from shooting the arrow, responding unskillfully. And because I didn't respond, it made me more patient and loving and giving. Um, that was the gift that she wow. bestowed upon me and my brothers. I don't know how they <laughs> take it, but I know me as a noun, a, a practicing Buddhist, um, that it it's like a path that I didn't know was, you know, that I was taken or being forged. I didn't know I would land here. Yeah. Uh, so the practice is important uh, for me. It's it's meaningful, and I thank you, Donald. Yeah, for, thanks, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the and then I I think it's also we could actually see where they're the counterparts with uh, Catholic tradition with Christian tradition more generally can, can think of different teachings. You know, like do unto others as they would have as you would have them do unto you. It's it's a, it's close, right? It's pretty close to that. Or, um, you know, just the whole idea of love. Love is non-reactive, right? And so I think those teachings are, are very close. And, you know, and then, then you know, then the, the challenge is, and again, we can use the language in different ways. It's, it can be a little confusing. I'm, I'm emphasizing in the long run, I'm using the word responsiveness to mean non-reactive, right? So in English, it could be, you know, sometimes we use the word react- and it doesn't mean being reactive, right? So we just use it like that. So, so, um, but yeah. So again, I think it's you know as maybe as a child can be really important just to sit with what's there, right, and see what's there, and then eventually in the long run, how can I respond non-reactively, or how can I have a skillful what you were calling a skillful response, right? Yeah, and that's uh, that's you know that's complex too. So. But yeah, yeah, thanks for, what's your mom's name? Uh, Diane. 
Yeah. Thank you, Diane. <laughs> yeah, she was such a sweetheart, such an amazing lady. But she bestowed this, and I'm walking in her shoes and um, didn't know. Yeah. Didn't. It would benefit me later in life. So yeah. I thank her. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Radia. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Jamal, please. Yeah, good, good to see you. Hi. <laughs> yeah, you too. Hi. Hi, everyone. Thanks. Um, I'm not entirely clear on the distinction between craving and grasping. Yeah. Like when does, uh, when does grasping begin? Like if I see a cookie and I want it, like does grasping begin on the level of action or like intention when I start forming planning thoughts about how to get the cookie? Is that a form of grasping? Like, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. Yeah. I think, um, you know, um, Lived experience never hooks up perfectly with words and concepts. We just maybe start with that. But that being said, it's pretty much like you were saying that um, if we want to make a distinction between craving and grasping, grasping is when we act. Grasping is when I take the cookie and the craving would be all the thoughts before I take it. You know, when I'm sitting there saying, should I take it? I really want it. You know. And, and various thoughts and feelings like that. And the grasping is when there's, there's action. So it'd be the same way if I'm, uh, you know, at a meeting and I'm thinking, you know, I'm having judgmental thoughts and I'm thinking, you know, you know, that person, rah, 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 rah. You know, then, um, you know, I haven't really uh, uh, spoken yet, but then I speak up reactively. That would be more the, the actual pushing away to the... Again, the the experience doesn't perfectly match there, but it you know, like with your example with the cookie, it matches pretty well. Yeah. Does that get at it, Jamal? Yeah, yeah. You say grasping and aversion is on the level of action. So if um, well, aversion of you know uh, the the I'm distinguishing the pushing me, away. The pushing away. Yeah, that's it's really have I acted? And action would be speaking. It could be physical movement, like taking hold of a cookie or whatever. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. The Buddha didn't uh, clarify the teachings in terms of cookies and so forth, but uh, there you go. Uh, thanks, thanks, Jamal. Uh, Lauren, please. Uh, hi, and thank you, Donald. Uh, just to present myself, uh, I'm French, and I've been listening to your Dharma talks through Dharma Seeds for a year now. Wow. And as part of ending an eight-week MBSR class, uh, I decided to join a community to practice regularly. Yeah. Uh, I've listened to your talk uh, this week and last week as well, and my question is about uh, the end of reactivity. Yeah. What does it mean? Does it mean when we, because I noticed uh, with mindfulness that sometimes, for example, I hurt my foot uh, tripping on my table, yeah. and I will see a chain of event of blaming uh, who hasn't pushed the table or who has, but what does mean the, uh, what does the end of reactivity mean? Does it mean we see the chain of reaction and we choose deliberately to not act upon it or can we hope for the chain of reaction to disappear that means we see we feel the unpleasant but there is not the blaming and insight is it rather more in relation to other people or can we hope that inside the chain of reaction disappear 
I'm really hoping I'm clear with this question. I, I think so, Laurent, yeah. Uh, pas de problème. <laughs> Thank you, merci. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I think it's uh, the, the end of reactivity is um, it's more individual. If we're talking about the end of reactivity relationally, um, we might talk about both people, but if I'm looking at my own experience, the end of reactivity is when there might be still the unpleasant experience, but I'm not blaming anymore. I'm not blaming, I'm not judging, I'm not reacting at the level of the body, tensing and all that way. You know, so the, um, the end of reactivity, you know, is when I'm just with the pleasant or unpleasant. I have something difficult happen with another person, and maybe I can be just with the, you know, maybe I'm angry and I'm with that, um, and I am, you know, when I can, when I'm not blaming or judging, but maybe there's just a raw anger there, and maybe, and eventually, after I sit with that, it will, it will actually change. So again, as I was saying with Jamal, um, there's not always like a clear, um, a totally clear distinction, but it can be more or less clear. You know, that the, the end of reactivity is when, basically, when I'm just with the, the pleasant or just with the unpleasant without going any further. You know, like I say, oh, you know, you know that's still, I still feel unpleasant, but I'm not blaming myself anymore. I'm not blaming the other person. Did that, did that get at it, Lawrence? You're, you're, it looks like you're still muted, yeah. There you go. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's what I wanted to know if we can, because now in my practice I see things, but it still feels automatic. And I wanted to know if, uh, you know, I, I, I just come to the reactivity, it seems very quick. And yeah. I was hoping that my practice would, you know, uh, lead me uh, to for this to end, but I see what the point you Yeah, made. a lot of reactivity is very automatic. And we, when it happens, the way to practice would just be to be with it. Sometimes we can actually go back, you know, and if we remember that model that goes from pleasant and unpleasant all the way to grasping those, um, you know, that four-step model, sometimes when I'm reactive, like if I've had something difficult happen with another person and I'm noticing myself reactive, I can sometimes ask, can I, can I touch what was painful with that interaction? And I can actually go back to the unpleasant and sometimes I can stay there, and if I stay there, the reactivity won't be there in the same way, at least for a while. So, and so, um, but a lot of times it's automatic, but the process of mindfulness can help us to, first we are with the reactivity, we notice it, and then over time, it um, it, it can can sort out, I can be, you know, very judgmental. I stay with the judgmental energy for a while, and then I notice, oh, I'm sad that happened, right? And maybe I'm, the sadness is not going to be reactive, no longer judgmental. That, that could happen, right, when I just stay with the, 
being judgmental. Okay. Okay, thank you. That gives me hope for the practice. Yeah, yeah, just continue thank and, you. and explore. Thanks, thanks, Laura. Thank you very much, yeah. Donald. Yeah, and bonsoir. <laughs> Merci. <laughs> Good. Time for, is there any time for one more, if there is anyone, if it's on the brief side? Anyone else have something to share or something to ask? Okay, well let's let's go to our our finishing then. We'll do that in two ways. First is to first is to bring to mind your intentions for the next week. Working with this teaching of dukkha and the end of dukkha, how would you like to bring what may have been helpful from today? into the next week. How would you practice? What are your intentions? And then I'll end by going back to that uh, quotation, really two from the Buddha. I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. And the second, hatred never ceases through hatred. It is only through love that it ceases. This is an ancient law. And then we'll, we'll end with the dedication of merit. May our time together be of benefit to us, to those in our lives, and eventually to all beings. May our time together be a benefit to all, knowing that we are part of all beings. So thanks again, everyone, and I'll give my little shimmy to say goodbye. And um, you can unmute and uh, say hello and goodbye as you wish. Oh, goodbye. À la prochaine. Bye. 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 everyone. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Thank you, Carlita. That was wonderful. I love your smile, Carlita. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Donald. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, till next week. Thank you. Great talk. Thank you very much. Yay. Thanks again, Carlita. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Donald. Yeah, till next week. See you next week. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.